The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute and by the support of listeners like you. Thank you for all you do. Your contribution allows us to produce The Glenn Show week after week, along with all of the other great content at glennlowry.substack.com. Your contribution also helps to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Once again, thank you. I think we're underway. Hi there, Sally. This is The Glenn Show. Uh, Welcome. Thank you. I'm Glenn Lowry, Glenn Show. We're at Substack. We're at YouTube. Uh, the Manhattan Institute sponsors the Glenn Show. I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, John Paulson Fellow. Sally Saitel is a psychiatrist, practicing psychiatrist. She's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and an author about uh, health policy and mental health issues. A lecturer at the Yale Medical School uh, and a prolific author. And she's agreed to come on the Glenn Show. I'm so grateful, Sally. Welcome. Oh, thank you. You've been wanting to come on the Glenn Show for a long time, haven't you? Who Tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so flattering. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm a, certainly an avid listener, so it's it's uh, very, I'm honored. Thank you. I mean, people should know that you write books. You wrote a book with the title PCMD. I gather you were upset about a kind of wokeism infecting uh, the way that people practice medicine. Yeah, that book was uh, from 2000. My goodness, uh, 2000 or 2001. It, it's 2000. Oh, and it goes back um, a long ways. I'm sorry to go back so far. <laughs> yeah, no, but it really anticipated what uh, is now you know, virulent in, in medical schools. Um, at the time I wrote that book, and was stimulated by um, two things. One was when I heard that uh, at the um, university at, at San Francisco General Hospital, they were dividing up their inpatient units by the identity of the patient. So if you were a, like a black schizophrenic person, you would go to the uh, black unit. If you were an Asian with schizophrenia, you go to the Asian unit. If you were a gay person with a similar affliction, whatever it was, depression, um, psychosis, OCD, PTSD, anxiety, you'd go to the gay unit. Um, there happened not to be one for, uh, specifically for white people. I think they went wherever there was an extra bed. Um, and uh, I just, I kind of couldn't believe it that an identitarian lens had, you know, imposed itself so kind of irre- irrelevantly on the treatment of severe mental illness. But, you know, when you think about the the philosophy that was undergirding the these, these um, units, the idea was that the mental illness was in large part a reaction to uh, oppression, discrimination. And uh, so that was their justification. Now, again, for people with severe mental illnesses, it's wholly irrelevant. I mean, there's, I'm not saying that there aren't differences in, let's say, pharmacogenetics. Some, Some groups have a tendency perhaps to respond a little better to some drugs than others. Actually, that's not so much true in psychiatry, but we are trying to perfect um, what's called pharmacogenomics, but, um, but it, it was irrelevant. And, and, the, uh, and the, the sense of what the etiology of these conditions were was, frankly, you know, to me, perverse. Um, and so that, that really got my attention. And then another um, 
another event got my attention, which was, this is actually related to this. Actually, in a way, this is probably more relevant to a book I did later with Christina Huff Summers called One Nation Under Therapy. Um, actually, that had to do with uh, a pr- kind of the presumption of fragility that, that was taking over um, psychiatry and society in general. And what prompted me to write that book with her was um, uh, what happened after 9-11, which was um, battalions of, of grief counselors and a presumption, again, that, that um, people all over the country, now I'm not talking about people who were actually in the building and who witnessed horrific uh, things, but that the average American would actually become mentally ill, would suffer from a post-traumatic syndrome just by virtue of this happening. Um, obviously, you're mentally ill if you don't have a profound reaction to it. But um, but this idea that um, we needed psychiatrists, we needed experts to help us get through this, when frankly, Rudolph Giuliani knew what we needed at the time, which is, you know, community and information. So um, so I jumped ahead of PCMD to, to talk about that other book. No, but I got to ask you something since you're doing that, which which is COVID which is, did you see anything in the reaction to the pandemic that reminded you of the concerns that you had about over-therapeutic importation of mental health uh, narratives into uh, other kinds of political experience? Yeah, I, I did. I remember, um, I, I think I wrote a piece uh, on that, um, trying to separate out, um, a, you know, a normal reaction to, you know, a pretty dramatic uh, event in the country that had significant economic ramifications for some people. I mean, losing your job or um, incurring some, you know, huge economic reversals is massive. Having your kids' schooling disrupted disrupted, and then your own life, um, deaths, for heaven's sakes. I mean, yes, these, these are highly uh, enormous impacts on people's psyche. But A, they're normal, and B, um, we can address, you know, we can address them. We don't need psychiatrists. You need some kind of economic aid. Again, you need support for families. Um, now, of course, some people, and usually those with pre-existing um, difficulties, you know, are more vulnerable to uh, experiencing these, in, these kinds of adversities in dramatic ways. So they may need more help. And children... Um, and young people who were in school, I, I think, um, I think they they did definitely suffer psychically. But um, but the average person uh, is resilient, and to the extent that people were you know, highly distressed by the by the pandemic, um, some of the uh, some of the problems they were having is something that can be addressed socially with uh, people who. You know, lonely people had to be more isolated. They could be visited. I mean, you know, some communities really mobilized to do all these things. And as much as, you know, identify as a psychiatrist and I know so many brilliant people in my field, you know, I've, I've kind of been a critic for a long time about, about invoking us. We were kind of not needed. I really think people who have expertise should apply it in, in areas that, that need it. I mean, another example, believe it or not, was to Donald Trump. Um, People kept saying, uh, you know, well, what do you think as a psychiatrist to me and, and many others, not just me? And did you write publicly about that controversy? I did. Yeah, I wrote with Peter Kramer, who um, I don't know if you know him, but, you know, he was I a don't. Yeah, for a long time the medical, at the medical school. He wrote Listening to Prozac uh, quite a while ago. Oh, well, I've heard of him then. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, we wrote a piece on um, basically on why are you getting psychiatrists involved? Um, uh, first off, all the all you need to know is visible in his case, in the, in the case of the president, to the public. I mean, he, he's, he's highly visible, and we don't need a diagnosis. There was always this obsession, what's his diagnosis? What's it? Yeah. Not what his diagnosis is. Uh, yeah. uh, in this case, it was a, let's just say it was a per- severe personality disorder. You can't fix that. Uh, <laughs> if he acutely became psychotic or depressed, yes, for, for sure. No, but what it seems to me is it's the medicalization of something that's not really medical in order to appropriate the authority of expertise. Once I have it categorized as an issue of mental illness, and then I can invoke the trump card of the psychiatric authority to certify the mental illness, when in fact it's more like a political phenomenon where we've got where P.T. Barnum or whoever it is is uh, prancing around on the stage as president and you have to decide whether you can live with that or not well and they and that the, the other thing is that people elected him uh with oh, full transparency yeah. and so the point of our article um it was in response to a commission that jamie raskin was trying to set up as part of the 25th amendment that that would use psychiatric expertise and you know our point was Look, unless it's an acute change in behavior or thought or, you know, mood, in which case probably a clinical phenomenon was taking place, leave us out of it. It's political um, whether you decide to impeach him or not. And um, do you agree with John Haidt that the Republican Party is uh, politically stupid? Oh, um, well, they're making I mean, just look at the. um Union, State of the Union address. I mean, it's it's just appalling <laughs> to uh, think that you know if we, what should be respected Congress people are booing a president. I mean, it's not how you constructively disagree. Uh, that alone, and yes, I mean, you know, I was always a very apolitical person. Um, I'm embarrassed to tell you the first time I voted, um, and it was for no, it was for Clinton. Um, but I could have voted probably for two presidents before that. And um, and then I, uh, so I vo- voted for him. But then the next year, this was 1993, right? So that year, I left my assistant professor post at um, Yale School of Psychiatry and did a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship. And I... Um, it was through Robert Wood Johnson, which I, I'll be die- grateful to my dying day for that opportunity. You go to Washington for a year, work with a senator or a congressman, and it was fantastic. Um, there were six of us. No one would go with a, wanted to go to a Republican congressman. So they, they actually begged somebody, please work with the Republican. And I was so apolitical. I thought, fine, I'll, I'll do it. And lucky me, I got one of the greatest Republicans ever, who's retired now, Nancy Kassebaum, um, Kansas. And it was an amazing year, but um, but it was a time where um, these were such remarkable people. Alan Simpson, um, William mm. Cohen, I mean, go on and on and on. But mm. and I did a little work with the Veterans um, Committee, which is Alan Simpson was um, the chairman of that. And uh, it was an amazing experience, and it was just a, such a different culture. I realize that's quite a while ago, but um, but it, it's at least the the visible. You know, there are good congressmen there, but the visible ones are 
um, I mean, I'm not very partisan, but um, it's just not pleasant. It's just not something to be proud of. I'm going to take that as a yes. <laughs> the question was, did you think the Republicans were structurally somehow, and they've, they've come upon hard times as a, as a functioning uh, mechanism for projecting a set of values that you and I might actually agree with. Well, it sounds a lot the, better than stupid. Yes, yes. Okay. Now, we were going to talk about organs. Okay. Um, yes, I have a, uh, excuse the pun, organic interest in organs. I've come upon uh, that very honestly because um, I've had two kidney transplants. And oh, my God. Two. two well, you know, um, I needed one kind of latish in life when I was in my 40s. But some people, who, if they need them in their teens and 20s, they'll probably go through three or even four transplants because they don't last forever. Um, and the medication you take, you know, the anti-rejection medications you just have to take, have some nephrotoxicity in them. So paradoxically, the medication you take to keep the body from attacking your kidney is, is not that healthy for the kidney. So, um, but in oh any case... Most people who uh, are uh, on dialysis, uh, thank goodness I never was. I'm so grateful for that. But uh, Or who need a kidney, suffer from hypertension or diabetes. Those are the two main um, systemic illnesses. You don't just lose one kidney. I can't tell how many people you know, innocently said, both kidneys? Yes, both. It's, a, it's what's called systemic illness, which means it Frankly, it's your whole, whatever it is that is wrong, let's say diabetes or hypertension or lupus, but it hits many organs at, at once. So both have to be destroyed in the case of kidneys in order to be in renal failure because clearly we can survive with one kidney because people donate and are left with one kidney. So in my case, it was a little bit of a mystery as to what happened, but, um, and clearly it happened slowly because I didn't, I felt fine when uh, basically an incidental blood test showed that I, my kidneys were failing. Um, and in fact, a lot of organ failure is like that. Uh, it's so gradual that until you lose about 70 to 90 percent of the function of an organ, you really don't know there's anything wrong. So you never experienced any uh consequence of the failure of your organs? Well, as time went on, it was sort of diagnosed in 2004 just from a blood test um, and a blood test that was taken just as, you know, a regular blood test. And um, it, so it took me about, um, frankly, two years to, to find a donor. And that was an ordeal that I have written quite about. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, and to answer your question, by the time um, just before, at the time I found that donor finally at around 2006, end of 2005, transplant was in 2006. Yeah, then I was feeling not great. And it looked like dialysis, I have to get on dialysis, which, you know, you know, you could say, thank God dialysis exists because it really is, um, uh, uh, it, it will keep you alive for many years, never as many years as you would have otherwise survived had you gone to transplant. Uh, but it's a bridge that doesn't exist for people with liver failure. Um, with heart disease, there are some uh, assist devices that can help, but that's only for a certain kind of heart disease. Uh, so, you know, thank goodness it exists, but it is 
it's kind of dreadful for most people. It's it's uh, three times a week, four hours a day, very exhausting, um, sometimes painful. It's 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 uh, people yeah. often become disabled as as a result of that. So anyway, I knew you yeah. know from medical school that I had to uh, find a donor, and that was an interesting odyssey, actually. Um, and this is um, the first kidney. Yeah. Yeah, the first one. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't know, you know, should you ask people? Because it's really a momentous kind of request. Um, and I didn't have a, a family that was in a position to, to do it. So I was basically dependent on, you know, friends. And, um, you know, people kind of kept canceling and it's hard to get too angry. So, of course, you don't, although it's devastatingly disappointing. And kept I canceling, meaning they, they had agreed? They were, do it and then they and then oh my one, god no one uh, woman her husband said he'd divorce her if she did it and another wow. oh um, no yes uh, another one believe it or not this story always um she her best friend happened to be a surgeon and when she was telling her best friend she was contemplating it that surgeon discouraged her but um and then wow. I went, I basically, I went to something called matchingdonors.com, which is a nonprofit. I call it K-Date instead of J-Date because you kind of hook up with someone who wants to give an organ. K-Date. And, well, <laughs> luckily, the ratio of people interested to do, in donating, and they've made many, I'm sure they're in the thousands now of how many people they have matched, but... Um, People volunteering to donate without yep. having in mind any specific person to That's whom they're right. donating? Yeah, it's called non-directed donor donation or Good Samaritan donate. Well, actually, non-directed, let me back up. It's They start out with the idea of non-directed, meaning I really don't, I want to donate and I don't care who gets it. But they do select, you know, they, they scroll through the names and whoever looks most deserving or reminds the most of someone they love or whatever their rationale, they pick someone. Wow. Yeah, so... um, I I, I want to interrupt for a minute, though. I mean, I want you to go on with the story, but I just want to remark, I mean, because it strikes me, I've never, I've never at least thought about this, which is if you rely on a voluntary system, you create a circumstance in which people have to ask. As I'm a market kind, you know, so I'm an economist, I'm thinking the alternative is that you have, you let prices and you let people uh, make decisions based on their economic interests. But if, but this... This is creating both an opportunity for something, a kind of magnanimity or generosity, but also a burden of something. Because as you say, to ask somebody this, you place them in this position where they have to say yes or no. Uh, that's really costly uh, <laughs> to, to do because uh, the answer sometimes is going to be no. But then when the answer is yes and you get to the moment of execution and they say no, I mean, that. <laughs> So it's it's very uh, it's very interesting the say, non-economic cost of certain right. different ways of doing transactions. And it's very fraud. Well, remember this is the only this is the only arena in healthcare that's that's rationed that's, that's rationed in a really direct way. I mean, you could argue, yeah, we ration healthcare because if you have better coverage, you get it, but that's not the same thing. This is truly you get the kidney and you don't. I mean, there's a lifeboat ethics dimension to it. And um, so that's why people should try to find their own donor if they can, A, because a living donor will last longer, and B, because you can avoid the, the list. 
which in D.C. and big cities is between five and 10 years. And chances are excellent you will die waiting if you have to wait more than... Die on dialysis. Yes. If you're over 50 or 60, you will probably die if you have to wait more than than five years. So... um, Well, how did you find a donor? Right, right. So um, thank goodness um, uh, a a friend... um, Ran into Virginia Postrel, the glorious Virginia Postrel, brilliant libertarian author, former editor of Reason, my earthbound angel, um, and uh, just said to her, my friend said, oh, how Sally, because, you know, uh, actually, I think it was Christina House Summers who was the friend uh, and said, oh, well, she's not that great. She's looking for a kidney. And uh, I, I've never been more grateful for someone not respecting my privacy. And... Um, <laughs> Virginia said, oh, well, that's interesting. And that night I got an email from her that uh, in the subject line, it said serious offer. Uh, I was told you're in the situation and I would like to help. And and then she said the the magic line, because we weren't, we knew each other, but we weren't that friendly. If I am a match, I will not back out. And and she didn't. Um, and and that was... Um, wow. Did you know her well before? No, I didn't. I didn't. We were really kind of acquaintances. Um, I knew friends oh. who were good friends of hers, and so sometimes I would tag along and knew her kind of indirectly that way. But no, and it was very principled. I, I don't mean to say it wasn't an empathic move, but it was also very principled on her part. Um, and her what husband, was- thank God, you know, you, you can't forget the spouse. Because if he was against, well, Virginia's the type of person would probably do it anyway, but <laughs> the spouse and the, but her mom wasn't thrilled. Of course, now the mom's fine with it. And that was, now we're going on 20, next year it'll be, no, no. Well, it, that was 2006. So, um, no, it had a very, um, it was, it was wonderful, but, but it completely radicalized me about how we have to um, change the organ donation system. Because while altruism is an exquisite virtue, and clearly I'm the living embodiment of it, because I went on <laughs> to get another transplant, and fortunately Virginia's didn't um, uh, last as long as it should. It only lasted 10 years. For, I won't go into why. It certainly wasn't her fault. Um, but um, a living kidney should last between 15 and 20 years. And uh, But I had a friend in the wings who saw me go through this uh, just this roller coaster of people saying they would and then they wouldn't, and this man backing out at the very end. I mean, this man I met at uh, matchingdonors.com backed out like two weeks before. So it was really, um, that was challenging. So she'd seen me go through all this. Um, Kim Hendrickson, I'll give her a shout out too. Um, she's a political scientist and does amazing work running a kind of a, a interface with uh, police and housing for homeless uh, folks in near Seattle. And um, she was younger at the time and wanting to have kids. And she said, well, if I have my kids and heaven forbid you need another one, I'll keep it warm. And and she did. And she was there. And so I've had two personally, I've had two amazing experiences. But you know how many people don't. Um how intrusive is the surgery for the donor? It's, um, they use a, a laparoscope, so they don't even have to do, uh, in the old days, they did massive nef- um, nephrectomy. Um, that, that you'd le- be left with a huge scar called a nephrectomy scar, and a nephrectomy is obviously removal of kidney. 
uh, which is in your back. And they go through the flank and it was um, really debilitating. A person who did did actually manual labor probably couldn't work for or pick up heavy things for months. Uh, but now it's done through an incision in the abdomen. They eat as small as they can, maybe an inch, and they, they wiggle it out. And she was home in two days. <clears throat> so I'm not trying to trivialize it, but it's also not um, the, the most, um, a, a liver transplant is, is much, much more invasive and much more debilitating in the short term. The good thing about a liver, if you were to give a lobe of your liver or an, um, is that it grows back within two months. It's pretty amazing. But kidneys don't regenerate. Donors have part of their liver taken uh, and then uh, provided to the, to the patient. They yeah. continue to live on and the liver regenerates itself. Yeah. Uh, what, what is known about the effect of being a donor on subsequent longevity of the donor now with one kidney? Right. That's a good question. Um, well, of course, as you can imagine, um, physicians were it was something very important to them. Uh, and there's been a f- quite a bit of longitudinal research in this country and, and elsewhere. And um, their longevity is is not compromised, you know, at all. There may be a tiny bump in uh, their renal function, but it's not clinically significant. Now, you have to take into account that these are extraordinarily healthy people to begin with because you wouldn't be a candidate for transplant unless you were already healthy. But, um, but there's uh, no significant compromise. And all this is told to to the prospective donor. I mean, there's a lot of informed consent and um, and there's, uh, in fact, a, a waiting period that I sometimes think is deliberate. Uh, what I mean to say is, you know, a lot of tests have to be taken, understandably, uh, but um, they drag it out, I think, for like three to four months would probably, if pressed, this could be done more quickly, but it's not... It's really not a bad thing because it makes sure that the person really, you know, is committed, really wants to do this. And, um, and in fact, some people don't want to do this, which, which is a kind of a travesty of the concept of altruism in a sense, meaning that, um, you know, it may be a relative because people, of course, look within the family first. And it may be, you know, it's probably a relative and um, people have to have, um, you know, immunological match, not as tight as it used to be. They can really compensate for mismatches. Like Kim was a type B, blood type B, and I'm A. But they do some extra finagling uh, with you immunologically so I could accept it. But uh, nonetheless, um, you know, you go to your family first. And if you have an identical twin, you are in great shape. And in fact, that was the very first transplant in 1953. It's the only reason it probably could be done was because because the immunosuppressive regime, medication regimes were not perfected really until really until the 90s, but there was a big leap in the 80s as well. And but let's say you know let's say you never liked your brother, you know he he, he stole your girlfriend and you know and uh, or you're just terrified of surgery, um, or you think well my my wife is is has diabetes maybe she'll need a kidney one day and I want to save it for her. A million reasons that people kind of don't want to do this. So, but they're afraid. Well, this, uh, it. excuse me for interrupting again, but it relates to the point I was trying to make earlier that if you rely upon having to ask and people having to say yes, it creates a dynamic that can be very, very costly to relationships and to the Definitely. 
yes. psychological health of people. There's a whole book written about that by, by uh, I want to say two bioethicists, but I think one is a sociologist, and it's called The Tyranny of the Gift. And that's yeah. in everything. Um, yeah. So just back to the example, though, that if someone doesn't want to do it, um, you know, when, when he's, he or she is being examined, you know, as a prospective donor, says the doctor has to say, listen, between us, do you want to do this? Because I will, I mean, talk about a noble lie. I will say you're just not a candidate. You know, you're not physically healthy enough. You're not a good match. You tell me. And I think that's the right thing to do. Um, but it puts people in, you know, really, yes, a position that is, um, the whole thing is unfair, it just distasteful to have to, you know, lie and the conversion. And, the, and some people do go ahead and do it. Um, and they're not really that committed, but they feel so much familial pressure. They want to stay in the will, whatever. So, um, so uh, the system is, that, that's just one reason why the system is broken. The main reason is it doesn't collect enough organs. And um, uh, there are about 110,000 people, I think, or 120,000 people waiting for all kinds of organs. Um, about 90, 80 to 90 percent of them are typically waiting for a kidney. Now, that's not because the kidney is the organ that's most likely to fail in the human body, but it's because dialysis can keep people alive long enough, um, hopefully, to get um, a kidney. But, um, you know, 11 people will die um, tomorrow at this time because no one had a Virginia or a Kim, you know, to save them. And um, I happen to think, as, as um, kind of radical as this may sound to folks, that we have um, kind of romanticized altruism as the sole legitimate motivation for giving an organ. It's, it's I mean, again, who could be more grateful? But, um, but if we were more, um, if we would reward people for giving donors, if we would compensate them, uh, I mean, this is an empirical question, but I am sh sure. Um, I don't think you have to be, you know, um, Milton Friedman to know that you would get more organs. And that's, um, uh, and how that could be done is something that colleagues and I have been, you know, working on for um, for years. And in fact, there is a congressman who finally introduced legislation that might allow pilot trials, although it's it's very much an uphill battle. Well, before... Uh, talking about how it could be done, maybe we should talk some more about should it be done. And I don't have a dog in this fight, so to speak, but I can imagine people objecting to allowing money to be the medium by which you decided uh, whether or not uh, this transaction was going to happen because you're commodifying the body. What what would Leon Cass? Uh, I know you know who I'm talking yeah, about, but I can remember reading some essays. He was a very thoughtful uh, uh, observer about medical ethics kind of questions. Uh, you know, the integrity and sanctity of the body or something like that and commodification and the commercialization and that kind of thing. Not to mention that if, you know, it's a price mechanism that rations, then those who have resources will be at the head of the queue by... Uh, you know, at virtue of their ability to pay. And uh, you have the attraction on the other side, which is that those who have very little money will then be lured into or induced into, uh, 
using their bodies as the way in which they are able to secure their future and uh, the, the ethics of that. So you want to address those concerns? Definitely. And um, yes, Leon Cass was my colleague at AEI for a while. And although we disagree um, vehemently on this issue, I, uh, he is one of the most um, thoughtful, respectful of his, uh, of his detractors. Far more, he's far more gracious to people than they have been to him. A public mm. health establishment was no fan of Leon Cass's um, mm. about issues that transcend the kidney issue. Mm -hmm. um, and he writes just beautifully. And he did write a book called Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Half. Pursuit. Now, oh, Life, Liberty. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm, I can't remember it. But he had a chapter on, um, maybe it was Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Dignity. Maybe that was it. But anyway, he had a whole chapter on this issue. And yes, he, um, he, he recounted what Michael Sandel would call arguments from corruption as opposed to arguments from consequence or utilitarianism. And the arguments from corruption are ones I can't ever uh, explain well because they're so alien to me. Um, and they have to do with, as you said, commodifying the body, um, the idea of it being somehow undignified, um, uh, the, you know, the sanctity of the body. I, I really, I always love to debate people because I can never really do a good job on their side. You know, I, I tried to hum a few bars, but, uh, but that's it. I'm done humming. I can't go any further, but that's what they say. And they, they do believe it sincerely. Um, and um, to the extent that some of their uh, uh, arguments might be, I don't think they're arguments, they're sentiments, but um, mm. to the extent that one might have, for example, the commodification point that it, it might be something you could uh, approach with uh, reason, um, you know, meaning argument. You would say, well, um, you know, people, medicine commodifies the body all the time. The uh, surgeon has to be paid to take your organ. You know, the nurses, the hospital has to be rented. I mean, there's money flowing through this entire system. And the only person who gets nothing is the one who makes the sacrifice and takes the risk. Uh, now, that's compelling to other people. I don't know that that would be compelling to, to Leon Cass. But can I tell you, one of the things Leon said, and this is why I respect, because he was so honest, he said, but if it were my kid, I'd buy one. If well, I had it is honest. He'd admit it. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm trying to imagine what this mysticism might might be. And I and what this commodification objection, this corruption argument might rest on. I'm trying to imagine it. And I'm thinking that it is related to the uh, what Steven Pinker calls the ghost in the machine, you know, issue, you know, about the soul, about whether there's anything there other than the physical, material body whether there's a spirit there, whether we can give any sense to the idea that there's something ethereal, something, uh, some image of God that's there that is not the flesh and blood. And the reverence that we would have 
the 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 worshipfulness almost that we would have about this uh physical uh body so so as to not want it to be violated commodified reduced to a thing is related to our sense that it is the dwelling place of this spirit <laughs> Maybe now, does that, that's, a, that's not a crazy idea, is it? I mean, it, it, it's it a religious look, idea, though. Yes. I grant you that. It's not it, a scientific idea. It may not be a crazy idea, but is it, a, is it enough of an idea to cling to in the face of someone's death? Is that if you basically said, yeah, I believe this, but I'm willing to suspend it so someone else could live, how pro-life could, could you get? Um, and so while I would, I kind of respect, if that's the right word, um, the fact that some people hold this thought, what I, where I frankly don't respect is that they would let it get in the way of saving a life that I, I just don't understand. And I would hope they could tolerate the discomfort so someone could live. Let, let, let me continue in this vein. Uh, and I should just say, I mean, I'm devil's advocating a little bit here. I'm, I, I really have great sympathy for what you're saying. I'm an economist after all. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, but here I want to talk about the battlefield and the fallen soldier. And you send three more troops out to get the guy that was fallen. And you, you in effect, are doing this thing. I mean, you're risking life. It's not that you are foregoing the perpetuation of life. You're actually indulging the loss of life, but on behalf of this thing, this, this abstract thing. In, in the case at hand, when the soldiers go out to retrieve the fallen, who's dead, we're going to get his body. We don't leave anyone behind. This is this idea. Uh, we're spending life uh, in, in a way to affirm something that's intangible. So, uh, again, this... Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't have a conclusion from that. I just, well, I meant that to be a pro yeah. provocation. Yeah. If we're willing to do that, then we should yeah. be willing to engage in an activity where no one dies or is even at risk of dying. Um, because, okay. of course, operations can go wrong with do the donor, but it's very, very, very rare. So here it's, um, you know, the risk is, is infinitesimal compared to that. But I will say that Michael Novak, who is a very serious Catholic and also at AEI, did write an article for First Things uh, in which he was endorsing uh, the plan. I haven't even, <clears throat> we haven't even got to how it could work. Um, or okay. At least yeah, we were talking about whether it should work. We, we should but, talk about how it could work, too. Well, no, no, you have to do should first. Um, yeah. Sure. Um, so there are two, two kinds of objections, and, and one class, which we j just talked about in a um, brief way, is, as I'd mentioned before, what because I like Michael Sandel's dichotomy here of um, corruption versus, uh, I, yes, that something's corrupting. It's right. That means, I guess, that's the essence of it, that it's corrupting. Um, and, you know, to the extent, if you want to get your information on that or your visual from that, uh, using the black market in organs, well, damn right, it's d undignified. Um, in the black market in third world countries, it's a it's a it's a horror show. The the people are so poor they barely understand if they're even given informed consent. They don't know what they're getting into. They're promised money, they don't get it, and there's no recourse. Uh, there's no follow up if they develop an infection. They probably many of them probably weren't even healthy enough to begin with. 
oh, it's a disaster. So yes, that is an embodiment of, of all your worst nightmares, but uh, that's why we need a white market. Um, I want to go back a little bit because this okay. is a new point. It's important and, and we can come back to it. The point being that if you forbid it as a market, you don't actually forbid it because you just take it off the books and then, you know, it's like it with drug trafficking stuff. Yeah, clean. Uh, but, but the thing that I wanted you to address was the inequality thing. The fact that if you put a price on organs, Wait. the people who are going to be donating are the donating are the ones who have economic need. And the people who are in, first in the queue for acquiring are the ones who have economic means. And uh, many people would feel that that's unfair on both sides. Well, uh, that's right. That's the first of the two objections that, that, or that make people nervous. One, that it will benefit wealthy people, um, which as an aside is interesting that this whole problem is, is conducted in a parallel universe. That's true in the world anyway. But, um, but it, no, it, since this is a novel thing and there's so much status quo bias, you have to address it. So as you said, why about the wealthy benefiting? And then the other thing that really gets people nervous is a poor person rushing into this kind of thing. Someone yeah. who desperately wants money and, um, and, and then on top of it will regret it later. Um, so yes, so the plan addresses both of those. The first about um, who can afford it, it would be a third party payer. So um, anyone who needed would be you could even use the same list we already have now, uh, which is largely a first-come, first-serve list, um, which I should say is different from, from livers, as I mentioned before, because there's no dialysis equivalent where the, person, the people who are closest to death are first in line. For kidneys, it's a little different because of dialysis. So, um, so that's, that's frankly the answer to that. Um, it, could be a, it, could, it would have to be, I think, the feds or a charity that they have um, sanctioned to, to do this. and Okay, so there would be a fund. Yes. And people on the list would be able to acquire organs from donors who will be paid from this fund. Right, except we're not... Well, that's the second point we'll get to in terms of how they would be rewarded. Um, but I'll, I can tell you where the money would come from. That's a no-brainer, which is would come from dialysis which is a $35 billion a year cost to Medi Medicare. It's unbelievable. Um, one, I think that the ratio is one to five or one to seven in terms of um, dial people on dialysis. And there are a lot, almost half a million now. Um, they um, comprise maybe 1%, I think it is, of the, of the Medicare population, but consume about five to 7%. Um, the, yes, it's outstanding. It's a huge and huge, huge expense. So this so, is paying for itself. Uh, more than that. Uh, but yes, so it's really... You're foregoing dialysis. No, this is a really interesting point. Excuse me for interrupting again, but I, I just want to underscore it. You're, you're, you have a population of people who need kidneys. Uh, they are kept, being kept alive by dialysis. You have a population of people who might donate kidneys if they were remunerated uh, adequately. You could take the cost that you're spending to keep people alive on dialysis and bestow it upon those who would be thereby induced to donate their kidneys. You, everybody's better off here, except the dialysis suppliers. Oh, and I, I've often thought that they are the ones who, you know, whenever we've gone on the Hill to try to uh, talk to, uh, about a pilot trial of this kind of thing, 
I think they're right behind us saying, you don't want to do it. But um, anyway, then the second objection that I raised, you didn't, but is this notion of people who are desperately poor rushing to do this um, and then regretting it. And um, so the answer to that is to not offer what desperate people want, which is immediate cash, and to build in a waiting period of six months to a year. And, um, and then to do something radical, which is to respect the uh, uh, autonomy of poorer people to uh, know it's maybe in their own best interest. Um, you know, they'd go through the same medical procedure and screening as anyone else because the infrastructure is already there. They would be, you know, amply rewarded. I mean, people talk about exploitation. No, exploitation is when you don't, don't give someone enough money. Um, so we'd, we'd be quite generous. And um, there's enormous gratitude for it. So we don't see what's undignified about a procedure like that. Um, so the, um, oh, and about the poor people, oh, the other thing people say is um, mainly poor people, oh, you did say this, would line up to do it. Well, frankly, I don't, I'm not quite so sure. Um, I, it's an empirical matter, and that would be interesting to, to, to look at. I think people who are poor and or less well-educated are very, um, and sometimes, and often minorities are distrustful of the system, of the medical system. And of uh, tech, uh, of procedures in general, um, that's 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 documented. So I don't know. Maybe they would. I think it would be mostly graduate students, frankly, um, people who are well educated who have a a real altruistic impulse. And I don't mean poor people don't, but I mean who who feel like they can act on it and who have earning power. But right now they want some kind of down payment, <clears throat> you know, on a house or loan forgiveness, student loan forgiveness. So. Um, uh, anyway, I think that's who would do it. But when people say poor people would rush into it, well, who do you think is waiting on the list? I mean, God forbid, Glenn, you needed a kidney. I bet half the people listening to you would offer. Um, have you ever seen a movie star, you know, or a basketball player? There's a lot of basketball players <clears throat> who've gotten kidneys. And um, Alonzo Mourning is one. And he actually came up as a nice fund where he helps donors defray some of their expenses. And that's lovely. That's nice. But, um, you know... They don't suffer this. Um, I mean, I'm sorry they they were sick, of course, but I mean they yeah. don't have that agony of who's going to help me out. People are knocking down the door to help them out. But um, uh, but anyway, it's it's poor and poor people and minorities who who, who uh, disproportionately populate the list and and die. So that's who would get because people like me. Thank God, I shouldn't. You know, I still worry if I need a third one. I'm actually trying to be nice to my interns, but, um, you know, that I, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't have to be on dialysis. I mean, who the hell knows? But, um, but people, you know, of means can, they, they have a bit of bigger social networks. They can, they have a better shot at getting them. And I'm confident that some pay people. And truthfully, I would. It's against the law. I mean, it's against the 1984 National Organ Transplant Act to give anything of what's called valuable consideration to take it or receive it. So literally, the, the, the actual donor could, could be, uh, I think it's a $50,000 fine or, or five or, and or five years in prison. But it is so, against the law. So we have to change the law to um, proceed here, which is something that, again, a group of us have been trying to do for a long time. Um, but 
But that's the basic outline is that there's a third-party purchaser. I hate using that word. It's technical, but, um, and, um, and you know, it's a next in line kind of a thing. The donor is protected um, just as they are now. Really, the only difference is they get something in return, but it's not cash. It would could be a tax refundable tax credit paid out over a number of years. Actually, I have a whole tax plan written with Alan Viard, who's a tax expert at AEI, an economist. And um, you can be creative. It could be money they could give to a charity. So, um, so what needs to happen for this to happen? Is someone no, well, in Congress get behind it and make an issue out of it and build up the support in Congress to enact uh, the relevant legislation? Yeah, the paradox is that the public in various polls, and there have been a number of them, not just just one, are really very open to the idea, not of a classic free market, but of the kind of arrangement that I described. Mm-hmm. Pretty open to it. Um, and over time, the uh, transplant surgeons um, have become more receptive. The American Society for Transplant Surgeons did a poll a while ago that was the majority at least wanted to study it. But you've got a very vocal minority of, and that's who care, unfortunately, it seems, the vocal minority of um, people who raise all the questions you did and don't accept the, the answers. Because I can answer I think, I don't mean to sound grandiose, but honestly, I've yet to hear an objection that I don't have some kind of way to, if you're honestly posing the objection, to lay your anxieties about it, other than, again, the corruption. Are, are these people in this vocal minority, are they cultural conservatives, religious people? Or is that the root of their objection? Be, yes, they, they, they're the bishops, uh, the bishops. Uh, are not um, on board, and they have really some disproportionate cloud, especially with Catholic members of um, Congress. And then, uh, and I will call them out, because I've been criticizing them for every, all the time, the National Kidney Foundation, which is uh, unfortunately the main, um, the main, um, pu- uh, what do you call that, like public interest group. They do, they also fund research. And they do some good, they do many good things. They do, they do hold public screenings for blood pressure and um, lots of information they give out and they try to encourage uh, altruistic donation. All that's great, but um, they have just been um, extremely, um, uh, really quite an obstacle to to any movement on this. Um, But as I did mention, there is a bill in Congress um, that uh, does have a provision for at least trying pilot trials. And um, I do know some transplant surgeons, uh, notably one in Minnesota and another in Florida, who, you know, could be their dean and their, or the president of their medical center would say, you're not doing this, but they'd like to do it. And uh, it's just, you know, I don't really talk to people on planes because I'm asocial, but... Um, if I ever do, I really take my own little private poll. Just, hey, you know, where are you going and what do you think about organ sales? And, um, <laughs> and I have never met anyone who didn't say, oh, well, the, the, the responses range from, yeah, sure, of course, to, huh, maybe, to, not sure, but let me think about it. Um, now I haven't sat next to Leon Cass on the plane, but, or his, you know, equivalent, but, and they're out there for sure. 
But most people are very, they ask the right questions, the one you see you did, because uh, there's, you know, an intuition that it could be unfair and it, there is a yuck factor for some people. Of course, I'm so, I'm so habituated to this notion that I, I don't feel it, but I acknowledge that some people go, organs, but, um, uh, but almost every open-minded person says, it's something we should try because so many people are needlessly dying. I, I presume that you would be uh, troubled by organ harvesting, by, you know, giving them pecuniary incentive, somehow human beings being produced <laughs> oh, you to mean the, like to the, let me yeah. glow or something like that? I don't, I don't, I don't know that particular reference, but I think that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I mean, if you were a strict utilitarian, you'd kill one person, and then you can give organs to another. Yeah, you can farm eight, them. Eight organs. You can get eight. Um, um, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, yes, of course I am. Um, and I gather that the expedients like driver's license uh, with the designation of organ donor doesn't work because you need live organs. You don't you don't want. No, no, you can use certainly use deceased organs. I mean, that was the system for, you know, that was the majority of the system for the longest time, although now it's um, almost half, not quite, but uh, living donors that are transplanted. Um, and you do get on average one and a half kidneys from each what's called a cadaver. But um, yeah. uh, but no, not enough people die in a way that make their kidneys usable. Uh, and there's also been in the news a lot lately the, um, I'll be fairly brutal, but the fecklessness of um, the OPO, the Organ Procurement Organization, which is run by a semi, you know, it's run by, um, well, it's called UNOS, United Network for Organ Sharing, that has a monopoly contract with the government. It's had... It's 1987, which is the year that, God bless him, Al Gore is behind um, establishing this, this nationwide list. And I will say that in some of his uh, congressional statements early on, he said, if this doesn't work, if the altruistic system is not enough, it's not an unqualified failure, but it's a qualified, it is a qualified failure. Uh, if it's not enough, we should think of, um, you know, doing something for donors. And in his case, it was... Um, a contribution to the estate of the person because at the time, 1987, 1987 deceased organs were really the ones most used. So, so the ones you'd want to incentivize was a family to, mm -hmm. to donate and, or a funeral benefit, that kind of thing, which we should mm -hmm. be doing anyway. But the OPO is so bad um, in so many, in many states at collecting these organs. They're the ones who come to the hospital and talk to the family about donating uh, so many get lost on airplanes. It's stunning. It's stunning. So there's really serious um, re review of whether they should keep getting this contract. Um, so that would get us more don kidneys. There's no question. If they did their job right, there would be more, a few thousand more. But remember, I said almost 100,000 people are waiting. Um, so that would be wonderful. And, um, and then Congress could... Um, Again, I don't think this is a game changer in any way, but Congress could be much more generous in helping donors defray their cost because um, I was lucky I could, I could and I wanted to pay for Virginia to fly from, he was in Texas at the time, and for Kim to come from Seattle. What if I couldn't afford it? And what if they couldn't afford it? So um, there is a fund that helps with that, but it's very, it has a cap of $6,000. It requires that the patient, the recipient, me, 
would have to be only 350% above poverty. Why is that? It should be nothing. You should not lose one cent giving an organ to someone. So there are those things, and they will help, but they're certainly not enough. And I'm telling you, Glad, until um, we perfect xenotransplantation, which is basically genetically modified pig organs, and a lot of progress is being made. Um, but until this is, problem is technologically solved, you know, it will still be this uh, tyranny of the gifts and the tyranny of the list. And um, I'm quite convinced, and I'm not the only one, that the only way to make a really significant dent in this list, clear it out until the pig kidneys are ready, uh, and then it'll be like getting a hip transplant, uh, I mean a hip, uh, yeah, hip plant, that we have to reward people. And I keep saying it, I've said it a lot, um, but uh, it, it's, a, it's a tough fight. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, Sally, that this is uh, something that you will, with all likelihood, have to face again. I might. Um, so, I mean, God willing that you should live that long. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I can't really think about it all the time. And um, I guess you know, not. thank God I have spectacular doctors, which could be, a, I don't know if we have to kind of start ending, but it frankly could be a great segue into what's going on with medicine these days and the quality, uh, the, uh, I think, you know, the sacrifice of some quality to values of diversity, equity, inclusion, but maybe that's for another time. Why don't we make that the next conversation? We're kind of at the end of the hour Your here client. with Sally Saitel, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Do you have a, a book or a major article in which you summarize? I mean, you must do. Uh, you're, you're thinking on the organ transplant question, which is what we've been talking about. Yeah, I wrote a book. Actually, it was an edited book. <clears throat> it's, it's good. <laughs> it's called When Altruism Isn't Enough, The Case for Compensating Kidney Donors. And it's, it's an AEI press book, so it's free. Um, you can find it online. And I did write a long um, article in, um, this is in the New York Times Magazine on the whole, I think it was called Desperately Seeking an Organ or something like that. Oh. So it's, that's a personal view. But I have written quite a bit and I have a, a website that maybe you could list. And uh, that's everything you want to know about kidneys is, and is there. And if anyone has any questions, please call me. I'll make sure that our able assistant, Maya Rakoff, gets the URL for the website in question so that we can make sure it goes into the notes on this post. So, Sally, thanks a lot. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. Signing off now.